So we're back with part two with Kai Eckhart, legendary bass player, musician, composer, who I happen to have the privilege of having had as my mentor and friend for almost a decade now. Um, I'm just going to give you a very quick intro because this is a long conversation. Again, uh, we're going to be stretching your boundaries a bit, especially in the first half of our conversation. The second half, though, uh, dives directly into Kai's career mostly his um, work with the legendary John McLaughlin trio together with Trilo Gutu. So if that's the part you want to tune into directly, I suggest you scroll into the second half of the episode. Uh, me though, I'm going to take a listen to the entire thing because this has been one of the most fantastic conversations of my life. All right, let's hit it. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversations homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right, that's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. Do you mind if I start recording then? Um, not at all. Okay, excellent. Well, to start off with, thanks so much for coming back on, man. I super appreciate it. My pleasure. How are you doing today? How have the last few weeks been? Well, you know, um, we've had uh, unprecedented wildfires here in the Bay Area. I know. So I'm currently at my studio in Oakland, hmm. which is uh, 15 minutes outside of San Francisco. And um, this whole area, you know, which is basically Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco, San Jose, uh, Santa Rosa, um, this whole area um, is basically, you know, during the summer, since two years, like pretty much every couple of weeks, there are fires. Some of them are really intense, like, um, you know, they erupt overnight and um, then, you know, they have to fly in firefighters from out of state. You know, we're basically uh, having jumbo jets, you know, 747s at, as we speak, wow. dump like red liquid, you know, from the sky, like near Santa Rosa. And so what happens is like the entire area gets blanketed with smoke hmm. and it lingers for, you know, sometimes 10 days. Oh, wow. um, and so we have to keep our pets on the inside, keep the windows closed. Um, you look at the sky at night, you know, and the, the moon is like blood red, you know, it's like really not pleasant. And so, um, We've been dealing with this on top of the COVID crisis mm -hmm. and the uh, chaos with Donald Trump, you see? Quite a combination there. Yeah, the whole combination is just, you know, it's an absolutely ridiculous time, like, for people here, in, you know, especially in, in California. So I hear. At the same time, though, you know, it's like I have to keep paying my bills, making sure that, um, uh, you know, we eat, sleep. <laughs> you know, live, um, practice music, write songs. It just has to keep going. So it's interesting because it puts 
things into a different perspective, you know, like more than ever, whatever I'm doing as an artist um, is sort of like framed in, framed in a, uh, in a kind of situation where you ask yourself, what does it do for you? You know, like it brings up a lot of questions. It's like, why are you doing art? What, what can art do in this moment in time? You know, mm. how relevant is it for me to be an activist versus just looking after myself? You know, so I've dealt with a lot of internal questions and um, I'm in good spirits, I have to say, because it's almost like when your survival buttons get pushed like that and everything is being put into question, you know, your survival, your family's survival, the survival of the country, you know, then you start kind of also, um, you know, focusing the lens on on who you are as a spirit and you realize that you have a lot or you know speaking of myself that i have a lot of resources and qualities that come from within that are not even fully tapped and this is a great opportunity for me to to tap into those resources providing i i have the right attitude could you tell us more about the right attitude <laughs> Good question. So, you know, it's a little bit like, um, like, uh, like seeing a blurry image on the inside of your soul. And you know that that blurry image is everything you ever wanted, everything you ever needed from life, but it's not a sharp focus. So, The right attitude is basically, metaphorically speaking, the act of tweaking the lens to try to get that picture into focus. Mm. Now, you know, just like in, in physical reality, when you're tweaking a lens, you know, it's like you might have to switch it to the left, to the right, maybe move it closer, move it further away. So that that process of adjustment is much more like a surfer who's on a surfboard, you know, dealing with the shape of the wave, the wind, you know, the, the water, which is constantly moving in real time. You know, it's much more like that rather than a mechanical process, you know, where I could say, okay, TL, you know, um, uh, let, me, let me now write down what the steps are. Step one move to the left you know <laughs> yeah. it's like by the time i give i by the time i talk about it it's already shifted again you know all right however you know speaking about attitude uh there i found over time that there are some character traits that have served me well over time you know how how when you're growing up as a human being uh people role model different types of behavior, you know, some people will say you have to be really tough and aggressive and assertive mm -hmm. and be a go-getter. And then other people are saying, be careful, be careful, um, uh, watch your back, don't trust anybody. Um, you know, other people are like, 
ignore everything and just focus on what you want and work really hard towards it, you know? Mm-hmm. So life, mm-hmm. you know, just my friends, my family, everyone is role modeling behavior, you know, over the last, uh, I'm now 58, right? I'm 59. I just turned 59 in June. So, um, so for 59 years, you know, I've been able to sort of like pick and choose what I adopt uh, as a sort of like modeling behavior in combination with what I was given from birth, you know, my sort of genetic personality, whatever that is. So the combination of those two, you know. And so what I've learned is that um, that uh, the right attitude is like having... And I will only speak for myself, TL, okay? Because course, I don't consider myself uh, an expert on on behaviorism uh, or I don't think that I can tell another person what to do. But, but what I can do is tell you what worked for me or what continues to work for me. That just increases my respect for you. And that is the reason why you were such an important figure in my life and why I chose you to be my mentor for a very specific and very important and significant period of my life. Just putting in there to put that out there. Thank you, TL. You know, because it is that I recognize the guru in you, you know, uh, who is the, the, you have that unique perspective on the reality of TL, and so, and I have the perspective on Kai Eckhart, you know? And so I can say, hey, TL, I'm, I'm surfing my little wave over here. I just hit this giant wave and I managed to get through it by doing this, right? So we're just exchanging information that we can bounce back and forth, you know? And so, you know, to, to, to go back to what, what works for me, like say, if I were to put together a meal, you know, going back to analogies, if, if the best attitude to, to get through life as a human being in 2020 would be like cooking up a meal that's really nutritious and well-balanced, mm-hmm. so that would be certain ingredients that have worked for me really well and they've aged very well and I continue to um, believe in those. Yes, please. Tell us more. I have to be comfortable living with uncertainty. Mm. There's nothing I can do to make myself certain about anything. So uh, that already puts into question how I look at religion, philosophy. I cannot cling to any particular philosophy and say, that's it. Yes. Because the moment I do that, um, I might... I might stiffen up my body and get knocked off by a wave that comes from an angle that I've never seen it before. So true, man. And at this point, I remember actually having this conversation with you a few years back when I had this really strange experience when I landed in a cult without realizing it. Uh, it was a very harrowing experience. I was in a state of shock and uh, you shared this very valuable ex- uh, information with me, which was a huge help. Uh, so I want to take this opportunity to thank you again Oh, thank you, TL. Wow, man, that, that I, I dimly remember, like, you know, later on, I, I kind of would be curious to hear you out on what happened. Yeah, yeah, I think you might have underestimated how much you helped me with that advice you gave me. And you only someone with your um, 
uh, I, I'll go with the word stature and life experience could have helped me get out of that hole at that point. So, wow, yeah, yeah. man, we got to talk about that one <laughs> when we have time. Sure thing, man. Any t- yeah, I'm done. So, so basically, um, you know, to uh, get back into the ingredients. Yes, please. For a very good attitude of how to ride this out. Being comfortable with being uncomfortable, you know? So going like, okay, uncertainty is a reality. Let's just not try anymore to pin things down, but just look at things as appearing and disappearing and learn how to read the messages. So that's one thing. The other thing is trust yourself. Oh, so good. Trust yourself the, the unique you, if you get the feeling that there's demons inside of you, uh, nightmares, uh, weird thoughts, weird behaviors, they're never nefarious. Yeah. You know, nefarious meaning there's never something inside of your true self that is trying to be evil. That's just not true. I agree. It's yeah. like when these instead, you know, demons, let's, you know, let me just, put a name on it, a demon, right? Like everyone realizes that's a scary thing because it's like inside of you, nobody else can see it. Yeah. So another way to to put it is that, you know, when you see really disturbing things on the inside or you start to feel like you can't trust yourself, which is the moment where a lot of people will, people could be vulnerable to a fake guru in that moment. Like oh, yeah. when I'm, Let's say, for instance, you know, I, I realize that, damn, you know, I'm not happy. Uh, I, I might be like hooked on on certain kind of drugs, self-medicating, um, uh, getting into an internal conflict with myself. Mm. Um, that's sort of like the moment where a lot of times someone could show up and say, ah, you know, you have to follow this path and all your problems will, you know. So that's the dangerous, vulnerable moment, yeah. which I think is also how Donald Trump managed to amass these hardcore followers yeah. that will follow him everywhere, no matter how, how badly he behaves. It's pretty textbook stuff, huh? Totally. Like, it's actually a great study yeah. on how Donald Trump is now a cult leader. Actually, yeah. So back to the notion that a demon is a lost angel or misguided energy. Another way to look at it is if I put my fingers into an electric socket, it's going to shock the hell out of me, right? Yeah. But I cannot fault electricity. Exactly. You see what I mean? Absolutely. So in other words, whenever I've had problems in my life, whether it's with the outside world or with myself, that has been very uh, steady and, and positive influence on my life is that attitude that I'm never nefarious uh, inside. And when, when I feel nefarious energies, it points me towards a conflict that is a riddle I must solve. Mm. So you see, that's kind of almost like step one is, okay, I'm in conflict. It's not evil. In other words, nobody, there's nobody interested in screwing me over just for the hell of it, right? Exactly. And the other part is I do not believe in a dichotomy between God and the devil. I love that. That black and white way of looking at the universe... Um, 
let me just kill this phone here. Okay, so that dichotomy of looking at the universe as being either good and evil. Absolutes. It's just an error. It's an, it's an intellectual and an emotional error, which will give you the worst of religion. That resonates with me. In a way, like what I just said about I trust yourself, right, as being one of the ingredients and read internal conflict not as an evil intention but as a riddle you must solve in order to harness your energy the trapped energy inside of you and make it work towards the goals that your heart really has which are trustworthy it's also saying that i believe the universe as it is is trustworthy so good and needs to be taken very seriously. And I should never override with my own individual ego arrogance, you know, the billions of years that it took for me to be able to sit here and make sounds into an electronic device that then gets m miraculously transported to the other side of the Atlantic to show up in exactly the one loudspeaker that it's designated to be for. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, damn, man, like so much is happening on our behalf just to make life be okay in this very moment. I know, right? I remember, I'm not very good with quotes, uh, the sun came out this morning and didn't expect you to say thank you. Yes, precisely. But we forget it's out there every day. And yeah. It says it all. Exactly. So I'll give you a third ingredient. The third ingredient is like when you're not feeling well and when you're in conflict, talk to yourself. Yes, sir. Like don't yes. just let silence sit there and, and don't just watch yourself suffer. Yeah. Just yeah. talk to yourself and say, hey, Kai, what's going on right now? Just lay it out for me. What is the problem and why can't you solve it and what do you need? Yeah. And just keep doing that. Like if it takes you days and you have to come back to the same thing, especially with addictions, everyone has different things they run to when they feel like self-medicating, right? right? And then it can be as harmless as watching too much TV, right? Or constantly having to be on social media. Absolutely. So, and anything that's compulsive, right? Absolutely. Is usually a sign. I, I feel more comfortable numbing myself than actually being out in the open and like facing whatever is going on in real time. And so when I'm in that state, I learned that I should not allow myself just to, to hide in these spaces, but I need to almost tap, tap, it's almost like if someone is in the corner, right? <laughs> With his face to the wall, right? Mm -hmm. And let's say that's your inner self and it's stuck in the, and it won't look at you. And it's just like, leave me alone. And, and it's got its back turned to you. I, it's like, I put my hand on the shoulder of that person, you know? with a lot of kindness, you know, and, 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 a, and a lot of sincerity and say, hey, you know, tell me what's going on. No pressure. Just, I know you're not happy. There's always a way. Even if you fail 500,000 times, 500,001 comes around and you might just turn the corner. 
And that's always worked for me, man. I've learned so much about myself. And sometimes it seems almost like it takes an effort for my inner self to even trust its own self to reveal what what the heck is going on. That, I think you just really nailed the crux of what self-care really is about. Yeah, man. Uh, and it's, I've also noticed that it's so much easier for me to project my inner struggle onto the outside world, as in getting really mad at someone else. So true. You know, so true. and then literally going, oh my God, this person just exemplified something I really don't like about myself. Oh, bang you know? on, bang on. So true. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So, yeah, you know, that I think that that kind of, those are the things, you know, there are a couple of other ingredients that are important, such as, you know, the kindness is super important, you know, the compassion, because if you are radical with your compassion, so radical that even the devil could confess to you, you know? Oh, man, yeah. Without, without <laughs> having to fear any kind of retaliation. I love that. Yeah. You know? Then you are. Then you have reached spiritual solid ground. You know. Love that. And uh, and I I am aspiring to that, but I'm not there, TL. Okay. So let's just keep that in mind. That this goes back to the beginning of what I said about focusing the lens. I'm I'm te telling you the picture I'm seeing, mm. but it's still a little blurry. You know. Where my ancestors come from, they say part of the whole human condition is being work in progress. The minute we'd, ha we'd actually crack the code, we wouldn't be in human form anymore. I totally believe that. It, yes. it, it resonates with me at some point. Uh, there are still uh, aspects to that theory I haven't worked out. There are a couple of loose ends to it, at least from my perspective. Loose ends because I still haven't managed to figure out, okay, what does that exactly imply? But when you say it's still a work in progress, some might argue it always will be in this human form. I'm, I didn't do a great job of expressing what it is I was trying to say. But um, I ask myself, will, are we actually designed to crack it while still in this form? You know, honestly, uh, TL, it's like, you know, let's say what you just said is to be true and i kind of believe it is i kind of do too i'm still just i'm just not dogmatic about it yeah it's like it's a reasonable assumption we can make which would explain a lot it would right it just makes a lot of sense yeah it does yeah. um so if that's the case let's say that we get to a place where we transcend human form mm -hmm. the other humans would still be there Right. So, in other words, um, I could make another assumption that maybe an, an angelic form or, you know, a, a, a more evolved form of consciousness yes. would then probably still be involved in, in guiding the other souls out there, yeah. you know, are trying to find a way out of suffering. And so it's almost like the job changes, you know, like you're a student and then you become a teacher. And as a teacher, you know, you become a student of the teachings themselves. Yes. 
And then the teachings themselves are a student of the entire universe and whatever happened in, you know, <laughs> since mm. the beginning of time. So it's kind of almost like it's, it appears to be like, like a, a Russian uh, babushka doll. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great analogy. You can see how they get smaller and smaller and they fit inside of each other and you, but you don't see where the last one is because my, the, my resolution is not refined enough to see it. Yeah. And and it even crossed my mind that, you know, let's say if our physical form, you know, like Kai physically sitting in a studio, TL, you know, sitting in his studio is one of the Russian dolls, right? Let's say the next bigger one might be your mind that is kind of like invisible, but it's like... Uh, an aura around you, you know, that maybe extends a couple of feet in each direction. And then there might be a bigger one that might be your angelic forces. And then there might be another one. So in other words, that means we can't see the biggest one and we can't see the smallest one. We can only see the one that we're like attuned to like a radio station, Absolutely. which is us right yes, the dimensional bodies I and mean, there's a lot of literature out there actually on it some of them some of it even dating like uh quite a few thousand years back um a lot of uh, yogic uh, literature refers to it as well the different subtler bodies apart from the physical body um, uh-huh the the less denser it grows uh, the higher the dimension but i don't want to say something um which I'm not as adept on because I haven't read the literature well enough. I'm not well-versed enough to probably go on the record on it. But what you just said, it's, you know, it's, it's very much an established uh, form of, uh, I'll say, alternate science, not mainstream Western science, but it has been uh, uh, talked about for a while, as you probably know, and as as you also probably know, you know, quantum physics has also kind of proven it to be correct. Yeah, yeah. right. More and more, huh? more it and seems more. to exactly. be coming together that way. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that crossed my mind the other day, you know, this is one of those freak thoughts that I had where I was like, well, what if the smallest body, you know, inside of that fractal arrangement is the biggest one? <laughs> you know, and I was like, pew, like, oh, God, you know, well. I mean, maybe there is some being out there who, for whom we are just an atom, you know? I mean, we probably yes. are. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. It's quite, quite oh. the rabbit hole, uh, in a way. Exactly. But, you know, another thing I wanted to add to that, and I think that I will round up my little thing of what is the attitude, right? That's my long uh, end to that. Yes, please. I believe I have an operating system, which is my mind. But my operating system has to evolve with the times, you know. Now I'm dealing with COVID, wildfires, political unrest, instability, having children. It's like my operating system needs to be upgraded, right? And I've been working on that since the beginning of COVID. I'm like, I'm going to use this time in quarantine and upgrade my operating system. And so my operating system right now is telling me that it might just be that the purpose of the universe is 
to create art. In other words, that having fun is the highest goal. Playfulness. Playfulness is the highest achievement. And the most refined form is playfulness, at the same time not causing any suffering to the other players on the field. Yes. You know, maybe even enhancing their game as opposed to uh, getting in their way and blocking them. So that seems to work every day for me, you know, like waking up with that idea, I came to play. Beautiful. I'm here to play and playing is serious. Yeah. Very serious. Yeah. You know, so it's already different from mainstream society that says you should not play, you have to work. You know, work for us, work for this company, work for this goal, work so you can buy a house, work so you can do this. It's like, no, the artistic expression in and of itself is both the alpha and the omega. And if you do it right, the result is physical and mental well-being and a certain radiance and sustenance that keeps you moving forward. So that's the whole shebang. <laughs> Amen, brother. That makes total sense to me. I would even go as far to say the entire pandemic has been a huge expose. Well, let's just say a lot of things that really need to change about our planet. That's beyond a doubt. And I think this whole fear-based system of go hustle to survive, because that's what life is about. You just do the hustle because, you know, survival of the fittest and all that. That's, that's a very flawed premise that really has been proven wrong beyond a doubt. For anyone who wants to open their eyes and see things for the way it is, they'll know that that entire premise is flawed by now if they just open their eyes to it. You know, the corporate sectors are falling down. It's been proven that you don't need to sit in some cubicle in an office to make a living or, you know, thrive even. And that whole full of using fear and making fee people feel like they have to fear for their existence. That, again, I'm going to use a word that's been overused. That whole paradigm is falling apart to anyone who's open to seeing it fall apart. Yes, and also you can see that it has left a trail of destruction in history. Exactly. It has uh, caused wars, um, religious persecutions, racism, colonialism, like it seems to me almost like that attitude that you just mentioned is almost like an outgrowth of a guilty conscience of the perpetrator who has killed and violated and hurt people and living things and who has to continue to justify to him or herself why it was necessary to do that. Exactly. We could do an entire season of episodes on this, I think. <laughs> But I want to keep, keep my promise to some of my friends who are really looking forward to it for the release of your episode, by the way, and dive today into your career, which is also the stuff legends are made of. So with your permission, may we do that? Absolutely. You 
did get into your first encounters with music. That was while you were still in Germany. I'm a little hazy on how did you go from there to being one of the founding members of what's been called the greatest jazz guitar trio of all times. How, what happened in between? You know, a lot of it, it was coincidence. You know, coincidence as in being in the right place at the right time and then having the right goods for the moment and getting a chance, you know. And it was, in a sense, a combination of having been at Berklee College because basically I started playing music in uh, 1975. Like, that's when I had my first bass guitar. But then it got serious, you know, when I started playing shows, local gigs, and actually going, wow, I'm a musician, I'm on stage, I have a band, this is fun, let's keep doing this. And so, you know, long story short, you know, I was then a gigging musician in Germany. Let's see, um, 1981 was the year. So I was 20 years old when... I, was, I decided I want to do this for a living. So I just graduated German high school. And uh, uh, my family was not happy, you know, because music is just a very difficult path. And everybody knew that it was going to be tough to make a living and people were worried about me and all of that stuff. Hmm. But here, so here's where I got my first leg up. Uh, I auditioned for... Uh, how how was this? I first wanted to study music close to where I was in Mainz. Mm -hmm. So Mainz had um, uh, this conservatorium, music conservatorium in Mainz. Right. So I I was rejected um, because I didn't play upright. Huh. And also they had no jazz department. To get more serious with music, I would have to then pivot to classical music. Gotcha. And so then I, I looked out for jazz. And at the time, there was um, a school in Burghausen in Germany that, you know, was offering courses. So I did a class in Burghausen on jazz. Mm -hmm. That was the first time that, you know, I started to go, oh, wow, people actually read music, you know, on this instrument. And, wow. and there's tradition. And, you know, it was interesting. Um and then there was a school in Munich by Joe Haider, which was the first sort of jazz institute in Germany. Ah. And I went to Munich and I rang the doorbell of the institute and there was nobody there. No way. It was just somebody's apartment. So you just landed up at the doorstep and rang the bell? Well, like, yeah, I was like, I'm going there. I'm going to find out. <laughs> Amazing. There was nobody there, so I left, <laughs> you know. And then somebody was like, man, you know, the best school in the world is Berkeley College of Music. You know that, right? Huh. And I'm like, no, I don't know anything about Berkeley College. And so then, you know, I started to uh, get documentation, pamphlets sent to me. Uh, and then I learned about a summer course huh. uh, at Berkeley College of Music, six weeks was it six or is it 12 weeks, nine weeks, six weeks? It was a six-week summer course for, you know, people from all over the world hmm. to go and check out Berklee College of Music. And this is where my mom helped me out. You know, in fact, my, my uh, 
my Dutch uh, foster dad. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm like getting confused. My my Dutch um, stepdad. That's stepdad, different. Yeah. I was yeah. raised. I was raised by, but my foster father was German. Yeah. Uh, but my my mom remarried uh, a man from Holland. Yeah. You know, after she split up from my dad. Yeah, I remember. And um, they then moved together, and he is the one who paid for my trip to the United States. Oh, wow. See, so then I got to be at Berkeley College for six weeks, which completely blew my mind, right? Like, I was like, wow, there's another world out there. There's mm. bass players everywhere. There is, you know, and it was scary, you know, because in Germany, I was kind of like, I had my little uh, pool of people who knew me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Kai plays really good bass. But then, you know, in, in Berkeley, I was kind of like a nobody, you know. <laughs> How did that feel? It felt intimidating, you know. It felt very intimidating. Um, but it was, it's one of those things where you, you deal with the anxiety because the environment is so stimulating, you know. Yeah. It's almost like there's a competition between your fear and the excitement of where you are and all the stuff that's going on around you where you just kind of get sucked into it and you just go, you know, you're like, all right, I'm scared as shit, but let's just do this. Beautiful. And so after that, I went back to Germany and then I had to do service. Yeah. Uh, I conscientiously objected to the German army and then were, was put into the uh, hospital for physically and mentally handicapped children. But this was a big deal back in the day, I think, because uh, this was when you couldn't just opt out of military because you wanted to. And uh, I remember hearing a story about how you uh, convinced the government to let you off. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. There's a story there, isn't it? Yes. You want to tell us? Basically, um, the options were uh, do your military service, which was 15 months, right. or uh, conscientiously object to the German army huh. uh, and uh, then do a, an alternative social service for 18 months. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, and in order to qualify for the... Uh, uh, for conscientiously objecting, you would have to uh, go to a kind of test with a military person who asks you questions. Why? And so I actually came in there prepared because my teacher knew about this process. And um, I had a, a great teacher by the name of Enya Riegel, who, you know, was one of those teachers that really believed in me and kind of helped me out of my Afro-Deutsch funk that I was constantly in, you know, gotcha. amongst all, all German white kids, you yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> so Enya Riegel was like, man, you know, you're not the kind of person that should go to the army. She actually kind of like even encouraged me to uh, object. Yeah. And so uh, um, basically, uh, when I went on that particular day, uh, I was asked the trick question. 
And the, the question that the army officer asked me was like, all right, so imagine the situation that you're in the woods with your girlfriend and out of the bushes jumps a rapist. What a fucked up question. And he's got a knife, right? You have a gun. What are you going to do? Are you going to sh- use the gun or are you just going to watch him rape your girlfriend? Jesus. Wow. Yeah. So that was the question. <laughs> right? What does that even mean? Well, it basically means that the army is there to protect innocent citizens. And if you're not willing to use a weapon, you're letting your people down. You know, like that's basically yeah, yeah. just behind it, you know. That's so fucked up. So, yeah. Well, so what did he say? So, you know, first of all, he did have a letter from my mom, from my teacher and from a few other people who know me saying, we know Kai, he's not able to use a weapon. His consciousness won't allow him, you know, to kill another human being. He's just not the right person for this, you know, type of thing. Mm. And so my answer, I basically said that the analogy between that situation and going to the Bundeswehr is not something that I would consider accurate. Citing that if I am in that situation in the woods, I have options that are dictated to me by my conscience. I can talk so-and-so out of it. I could kick the knife out of his hands. I could grab my girlfriend and run. Like, I would have a whole range of things at my disposal short of taking the life out of this guy, right, with my weapon. Exactly. However, in the Bundeswehr situation, that very decision is being taken away from me in the chain of command. So if the sergeant or, let's say, my superior says, shoot, I have to shoot. And it's that loss of the ability to follow my own conscience in a groundbreaking moment like that, that makes me unfit to join the Bundeswehr. (laughs) And then they like, they put the signature and I was out of there, like right away. Wow. You were 16, 18? I was 17 or 18. That's like razor sharp stuff, man. Yeah, and I had to prepare for it. Like, I I was told that they were going to ask me tricky questions. I needed to deal with this within my own life, you know? Like, before, I couldn't just walk in there and say, I don't want to go to the Bundeswehr. Yeah, I mean, even for someone like me, that's a tricky thing. I've always had, all my life, I have had a relationship with martial arts. And I've always said, the reason I invest so much time into it is because I never want to get into a fight. Mm -hmm. And this helps me develop the kind of instincts where I know how to avoid troublesome situations. And that being said, the only situation, only time I would even consider hurting someone is if I felt a loved one was being threatened. Yeah. Um, but even that is something I'm, I say that, but I, I don't know if I would actually do it. it it's still something um, I can't theorize. Hopefully I'll never have to find out. But Oh, yeah. The trigger moment of me saying I'm not going to the army, to the German army, was a film seminar that my class was taken to where we saw the archives of movies from the First and Second World War. So basically for two days we watched six hours of film footage, archival film footage, 
And it was so devastating to me wow. that, uh, yeah, I came out of that like, like, like hell no, you know. And that's something about the Germans where I credit Germany. There at least is a certain segment of German population, you know, in the educational department that do take it very seriously of educating younger people about what really happened yeah. during the first two w wars and what war is like when it's not propaganda. Yeah. Um, and it's harrowing. It is absolutely harrowing. Being from Liberia, you know, I also had sort of like a secondhand encounter with the civil war, you know, where everything went down from child soldiers on drugs, raping people to uh, uh, cannibalism. What happens is like when people are in that type of environment, like something in people's brains snaps and they become just wild animals. But anyway, you know, to go back to, that's what happened between me going to Berkeley College, doing the um, six weeks, yeah. and then coming home to Germany. And so I had these two years where I was working with the handicapped children yes. uh, to actually figure myself out whether I was going to try to find a way to go and leave the uh, Germany permanently, you know, to study at Berkeley. How would I finance it? All these questions I had, you know. How did that feel, leaving Germany permanently? Ah, uh, you know, I think I kind of was ready for it. Yeah. I was ready for it because I think Germany at one point, like right around the time when I was 18, you know, I had been in a, a steady relationship with with a, a, a girl mm -hmm. she was fantastic you know now you know how sometimes you look back at your previous relationships and you're like you know who the good people were in your life that actually gave you something you know that are part of your maturity yeah so she was that person you know she was almost like beautiful like the one who took my virginity type of thing you know and and she was with me for several years. So that was the hardest thing is to break up with her. Mm. You know, my folks, they were ready to see me fly out of the nest, you know, because they, I, I was under foster care and they, they would want nothing more for me than to do something I love doing and succeed at it. And so they would be like, well, if you need to go to Siberia, <laughs> you know, to do this. We, we have your back 100%. Awesome. Like, we don't recommend that you become a musician, but if, if that's really all you want, then, you know, you have our blessing. That is so awesome. Yeah, you know, that way I felt like a certain freedom to leave Germany. Uh, another part, I felt like I had outgrown Germany. Yeah. So it was kind of like, yeah, it wasn't going anywhere else, you know? Yeah. And so that international level, you know, I was like... Especially once you've had a taste of it in that summer camp. Yeah, yeah, I was like, man, this is the country where... This is the school where Stanley Clark yeah. started, you know? So I was like, yeah. Did, didn't you go on to replace Stanley Clark in a band at some point? No, I actually played with Stanley Clark. Oh, wow. And How amazing is that? I, I played second bass in the Stanley Clark band. Right, that was it, right. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah, that was quite a, uh, an experience. So, yeah, um, 
I basically yeah. then applied to Berklee College of Music. Okay. Got a, a an entry scholarship enough for one year. Yeah. You know, in, like enough to pay for my dorms and my studies for one year. Mm-hmm. And then my folks paid for the flight. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. how I just ejected myself from Germany in 1983. And I arrived with my base case <laughs> and my suitcase mm-hmm. on the doorsteps of Berkeley College of Music, you know, checked myself into the dorms and then showed up at the auditions, you know. So, yeah. Okay, so from that point, uh, to start off with, how much of a role do you think Berkeley played in the shaping of your artistic personality? Oh, I would say, you know, if you put a percentage on it, mm-hmm. uh, I would say 60%. Wow, that much? Yeah. Wow. 60%. That's a lot, man. Yeah, and then 40% would be my, my personal efforts. You're being very generous, though. Yeah, well, okay, let's say at least 50. Yeah. (laughs) The reason being is because it wasn't only the curriculum, which is is very meticulous. Uh, It has a tradition. Like when you look at the roster of graduates from Berklee College of Music. Exactly. It's like MIT of music. Yeah, exactly. You know, like it goes all the way. I think, I don't know when the first people graduated from there either in the 50s or in the early 60s it's it goes way back and so they have a very methodical way of teaching jazz tradition and it turns out that jazz theory is by far the most sophisticated contemporary music education in the United States you know and I cannot speak for Western classical music or Indian classical music or any kind of, you know, ethnic tradition that is thousands of years old. But when it comes to everything from the beginning of blues to jazz in New Orleans, you know, all the way to the different stations of how this music became a melting pot of African influences and European influence, you find classical music in jazz. You know, you find blues in jazz. You find African rhythms in jazz. Exactly. And so uh, I'm very grateful of having had that systematic sort of granular breakdown to, okay, learn what one interval sounds like and memorize it. Now memorize the sound of all the other intervals. Put the intervals together in triads. Now understand how triads grow out of individual scales. Now see how different scales create different chords. Now understand how chords are put together to create a tension and and release relationship. Now let's check out the masters. You know, see how Bill Evans voices his chords. Now check out how, how John Coltrane deals with harmony. It's like every day, you know, now now we're dealing with miles, you know, early miles, Beautiful. cool jazz, you know, hard bop. All right, now let's look at um, electric jazz. What happened? Oh, you know, British music going into jazz. John McLaughlin gets hired by Miles Davis, right? What happened here? You know, all of a sudden, an all-black band is no longer all-black, 
you know? So that sort of like historic perspective, the, the meticulous breakdown of the harmony, the training every day, having to deliver papers, having to arrange for horns. That's like, if that's half of it, the other half of it is most of the people that I've ended up playing with in, in, a, in the realm of international, internationally well-known people, mm-hmm. somehow had a connection to Berkeley. Yeah. You know, they somehow they were like, oh, yeah, I know I knew you from Berkeley and I recommended you to so-and-so, right? Like Stanley Clark uh, was working with Jimmy Earl on bass. Uh, he had a show where he was the solo bass player and another bass player was playing backup bass. Huh. So Jimmy Earl either got sick or couldn't make the gig. So the keyboard player in Stanley Clark's band knew me because he was teaching at Berkeley. Huh. You see, so that's how these things kind of go. It's like, oh, I know the student, you know, and they would trust me because they, they know like when you get a student from the higher semesters, you know they're not going to fuck up your gig because they can read. Mm-hmm. Like if you have just two weeks to prepare the entire set of music, that student will most likely be able to do it because they know how to transcribe music, memorize the stuff, you know, write it out, read it off the, ch- uh, the stand if they need to. And so, yeah, for that reason, you know, half of it is the training. The other half are the connections that come out of that all the way to McLaughlin. You know, without me being at Berkeley, I would have not been in the John McLaughlin trio. How did that happen? How did that start off? The way this came about was that John McLaughlin always went through different phases of his career. Everything he did was always very meticulous and, and, and concept-based. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the big stations in his life, like he was kind of a blues guitar player in, in Britain, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he ended up somehow making his way to the United States and and got hired by Miles, which was his big break. Yeah. And then so he recorded Bitches Brew with Miles Davis. And, uh, you know, being who he is, just a very creative spirit, you know. He, he, he got into Indian music and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And then uh, he became really prolific, you know. And this is when Miles basically told him, Hey man, you gotta you gotta do your own thing, you know. And and so when Miles gave him that push, that's when he put together the Mahavishnu Orchestra, mm. because at the same time Zavanul was trying to hire McLaughlin in the Weather Report, huh. and McLaughlin said no, and instead put his own band together. Wow. That ended up, you know, arguing, arguably rivaling Weather Report as one of the most influential progressive jazz rock bands of the first, you know? Very much so, yeah. Billy Cobham, you know, Rick Laird, Jan Hummer, John, and um, who am I forgetting, on on violin, Jerry Goodman. Yeah, and then so then Wayne Shorter, and they first started Weather Report with, uh, uh, not Jocko, you know? Jocko was the third bass player in Weather Report. The second one was Alfonso Johnson, and the first one was this Eastern European dude. Um, God, 
I, I'll probably, by the end of the interview, I'll rem remember his name. Miroslav Vitus. Right, okay. Oh, yeah, I remember now. Was, was the, per the very first weather report was Miroslav Vitus on, yeah, on base. Yeah, I completely forgot yeah. about that. So yeah. True. So anyway, but that's kind of like besides the, the point. So how, how I managed to get hired by John straight out of Berkeley, it was... <laughs> that John McLaughlin, after Mahavishnu, uh, started Shakti with Zakir, hmm. you know, Zakir Hussain, uh, Viku, yes, um, and um, El Shankar, you know? Yeah. And so, so that band then morphed into... Uh, the John McLaughlin duet. He then started a duet with Jonas Helborg. Hmm. So he toured for a while, just him and a bass player. Huh. You know, and uh, out of that came the trio. The next level was like him, Trilok Wurtu, and Jeff Berlin. That was the first incarnation of the John McLaughlin trio. Right. So now Jeff Berlin, who's a brilliant bass player, uh, did not get along with John. Hmm. Uh, he, you know, Jeff pretty much had his own way of doing things. And, and John also had a very specific idea of what he wanted, you know. And being the band leader, he just didn't want anybody talking back to him, you know. And uh, uh, I think one of the points of contention were the bass amp. So oh. Jeff Berlin, you know, wanted to have a sound, you know, which can't argue with that, but wanted to have a bass amp on stage, uh, a bass cabinet, so to speak, like a speaker. But John McLaughlin Trio was based around the acoustic guitar and the acoustic guitar is very sensitive to bass frequencies. Yes. When we were on tour, um, I never had a, a speaker on stage. Really? My mm. bass would get plugged with the cable into a DI box, a direct box. Wow. The direct box, you know, just like a microphone, you know? Yeah. And then the DI box goes into the mixing board and then comes out of the monitor. So my bass sound would always come out of the monitor. Nowhere else, no speaker on stage. And the good thing for John was that the, the heavy frequency of the bass wouldn't push the delicate body of the acoustic guitar and make the instrument freak out. And so, and so that, from what I under, understand, was one of the points of contention where John was like, I can't work with Jeff Berlin. If he insists on that, uh, I need to find myself another bass player. So what he did was call his friend Gary Burton. Hmm. Now, Gary Burton, have you heard of Gary Burton? Of course, Who, of course. You know, legend. Yeah, yeah, sure, oh. of course, man. You know, if on the vibraphone, like nobody ever did what he did on the vibraphone. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Gary Burton was my improv teacher. Wow. So when he called Gary, Gary said, uh, John basically was like, I need a bass player. Can you recommend some guys? 
that you know. And then I was one of three people. Uh, the other two were Jimmy Earl, who, who's funnily was the bass player who was playing with Stanley Clark. Huh. Right? And then the other one was Baron Brown, huh. also an excellent bass player who, who was the bass player for many years in Steve Smith's Vital Information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it turns out that John then ended up coming to Boston, and I was the first one on the list for some reason. Mm-hmm. Well, I just got a call, you know, and I had McLaughlin on the phone. Were you expecting the call or did it just happen out of the blue? I was, I, I, I got a warning. Somebody said, McLaughlin is going to call you. Okay. And uh, at that point, you know, honestly, I didn't even know much about John McLaughlin. I only knew that guitar part that he played on School Days by Stanley Clark. There's this solo album. Yeah. Um, school days yeah and there's a song called desert song yeah and he plays this really cool acoustic guitar on it and i was like wow that's really cool and then i've heard of the mahavishnu orchestra but i didn't own any mahavishnu albums mm-hmm. so it was more kind of like wow you know he's very fast guitar player yeah. and uh, yeah. played with stanley and you know is world renowned I didn't even know about the Miles connection at that point. Wow. I was into funk. At that time, my big dream was to play with Al Jarreau. And so um, instead, I, I actually got called for a gig that was so much more substantial in terms of what it de- demanded of me as a musician. Yeah. You know, Al, Al Jarreau, I still love his music, but, you know, it would have been R&B. I would have been much more comfortable in my shoes. Wouldn't have pushed your boundaries as much. It wouldn't have pu- pushed my boundaries like that. So basically, on a, you know, on a nice day, and this was after I graduated. I had just graduated weeks be- before, and I was ready to figure out, am I going to move back to Germany? Can I stay in the States? Wow. Uh, and I applied for a teaching gig at the base department. And I was accepted. So in other words, I had the option of staying in Boston and becoming a Berkeley teacher. And it was Rich Appleman who offered me the job in the base department at Berkeley. And so this was right there when my plan was to move to Germany for a couple of years and take a break because my foster parents they had aged, you know, they were in their 80s. Yeah. And uh, I kind of felt like I wanted to stay, spend some time with them, yeah. you know? Yeah. So at that point, I was sort of in limbo. And then John McLaughlin calls and he's like, yeah, I'll just swing by the house, you know? Wow. And he just came to my apartment and uh, he didn't even have a guitar with him, you know? He just sat down with a glass of water and said, just play something for me. <laughs> wow. Right. Not intimidating at all, huh? Wow, man. Yeah. So I, I just played all the, you know, any bass solo I could remember, anything that came to mind, you know, where I could show off a little bit of what I do. 
Were you nervous? Yeah, yeah, totally. But I just went for it, you know? I just started playing the shit out of my bass guitar. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and he just lit up. He was like, yeah, man, you know? He just dug it because I have this little funny slap bass technique. Yeah. You know, where I like play chords. Yeah, and slap yeah. at the same time. Sure, of course. Yeah. And I've always done this, you know. I've always, I've always thought that this was my thing, you know. It's like I've invented, you know, like taking old school slap and then just putting jazz changes on top of it and stuff. And he just completely dug that. Like he was like, "Yeah, man," you know. You were, you were the first to do that, weren't you? It is kind of like your signature thing. Yeah, totally. And. Uh, you know, he, he, he got psyched, you know, and then he grabbed an old guitar. Like I had an acoustic guitar standing in the corner. No way. Like it was way out of tune and stuff. <laughs> so he kind of went, plang, 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 you know, and then we just played a blues together. Like, and, uh, uh, and that was it, you know, like then he, he got up and he was like, I remember him turning around in the hallway and he's, he looked at me and it's like, I think this is going to work really nicely. And then he, he left. Later on, I found out that he never auditioned the other two guys. No way. Yeah. So that's how I got the gig. <laughs> Sorry. You know, I have to say if, if Baron or, or Jimmy ever hear this, you know, wasn't my intention to, to muscle my way into the gig. <laughs> no, you, you, you're not the type to do anything on those no. lines anyway. It's, yeah. But yeah, that, oh, that's how the dice rolled, you know, on that day. Wow, yeah. what a story. How was, do you, how was the first rehearsal? How, uh, how long between the audition and the first rehearsal? A couple of months, you know. First, I thought it was difficult. Um, the fact that I was trying to get a gig teaching and I was like, not sure what's going on. Will I have enough work? Then when I started to understand how, how sort of like upper echelon that gig was going to be, um, I realized I don't have to worry about making a living, you know? It's like that band, uh, like, sells out everywhere it shows up. Mm. So uh, the first rehearsal, and this was the first time I met Trilo Gurtu, ended up being in Germany. No way. Because, yes, because Trilo, turns out, had moved to Hamburg and married a German woman. Yeah, yeah. I know he's based in Hamburg, yeah. So that, in, in, in other words, may have also been one of the reasons that McLaughlin was like, yeah, I think this guy is perfect for me because he has connections to Germany. Amazing. So mm -hmm. me moving back to spend some time with my folks kind of worked really nicely because I got a tape. I, you know, a few things scribbled out on paper, mm -hmm. but mostly the music was on tape. It was like I was start rehearsing with the trio recordings with Jeff Berlin on it. So my job was to learn the whole set of music, cassette tapes, exactly. Wow. So I was there in Germany at my folks' house working with these cassette tapes. And then what we did is come together for a rehearsal. And then I had a couple of more months and then there was one more one-week rehearsal stretch before the tour would start. And the rehearsal was in Germany or in the U.S.? The rehearsal was, I think, in Hamburg. Interesting. If I, like, because Trilog was there, you know, and John was in Monte Carlo. So oh. John lives in Monaco. Yeah. 
He came from France. Both of us were in Germany. We did the rehearsal in Germany. And it was hard, man. It was tough. Like, I thought that I was semi-prepared, you know, with my little tape. Mm-hmm. But once these guys started to hit, I was lost right away. Like, you know, like, I play the head, play everything correctly. And then we would start to improvise and play. And I immediately would get lost. Like, we would be in five and I would be like, where the fuck is one right now? So it wasn't the form, it was more the cycle, the, the, the rhythmical cycles you were, that were unfamiliar. Yeah, it was that they were like just playing five, six, seven over the form, you know. Yeah. They were so comfortable, you know, with um, polyrhythms and uh, just tricky shit, you know, that I just got lost. Like I literally realized if I listen to them, I'm going to get lost. Like I had to learn how how to just focus on keeping count and not getting wrapped up in what they're doing. And this know? was before you'd started doing, using Conocall as a tool, right? Yes. Yeah, I didn't know anything about Conocall at that point. Wow, that must have been quite a ride to deal with that music just on like mathematical terms. Yeah. Does that even work? Uh, I mean, you know, it's just basically we're going one, two, three, four, five, two, two, three, four, five, wow. three. I'm still in there. Four, four, five. Here comes the top. <laughs> Oh, okay, we're all still together. Great. Next cycle, two, three, four, five, you know, it's like on that level. Wow. So they were a little frustrated with me yeah. in the beginning. Yeah, they thought I was kind of slow to learn, you know, huh. and I could sense the frustration. Like, they were like, ah, oh, man, like they weren't sure I was going to cut the gig. <laughs> wow. So after that rehearsal, man, it's like I was got very serious, man, about... Every day I would get up for five, six hours and just play these tunes and count. And, and I had a bucket of cold water like standing next to, to me every day because I would like my hands would, would just like hurt, you know, from practicing so much. And I would just dunk them in cold water for a while. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then once the second rehearsal came around the one before the tour they were happy they were like oh oh i guess you got your shit together <laughs> Someone, <laughs> someone's been in the shed wow that's, yeah that that is so amazing it's it's so cool of you to share this too yeah and then the first gig man the first gig with with the trio was in reggio emilia italy and i was so nervous I was literally dripping sweat from head to toe. Really? Yes. And uh, there was even a review afterwards in the newspaper saying, yeah, the new bass player, you know, not not bad, nice feel, you know, but f- felt like he was a little nervous. I, th- I thought you were going to say a little sweaty. A little sweaty, a little <laughs> nervous. Like you're reading about yourself in the newspaper, being nervous and shit. It's like, ah. How did that feel? How did he cope with it? I mean, that's a lot of pressure for a guy who just finished college. It was, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't comfortable for, you know, I wasn't I wasn't ever 100% comfortable in the trio. You know, it's one of those situations you always had to be at your best. 
And yet, that is the trio who's that which has been called the. I'm. I, I need to go back on everything, but that was kind of the critics' favorite trio from John McLaughlin. That particular constellation, Kaya, Katrilo, Guta, John McLaughlin. What do you think that was? Wow, man. <laughs> I mean, if I listen to the music, I would kind of agree, you know? Like, like if I listen detached as if I'm not in it, exactly. you know? Exactly, yeah, yeah. And uh, in a way, um, I think it's... If, if, I, if I were to say, what did I bring to the table? Because, uh, you know, I can't say I'm, I'm, play, I'm not as fast as John. Like, when it comes to playing, like... endless strings of lines, you know, that are just, you know, at blazing speed over changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not my forte. I'm not conical master. I'm just kind of like a funk bass player who had to stretch into the world of, you know, uh, multicultural jazz fusion. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think maybe that's it because I insisted on making everything funky. It's like I, I always wanted everything to swing and to have booty shaking in it. Mm. So I was literally every night trying to make songs, you know, at tempo 140 BPM in 9-8, booty shake. <laughs> you know, that's all I was trying to go for. Damn. That is... And in a way, maybe that's what made the made it work. You know what I mean? Because the other two guys were just going at each other like, like you know, like these Godzilla movies, like where you have <laughs> Godzilla against Mothra, you know? Wow. Like, it was, I was literally the person who was like holding this, holding down the bass while Godzilla and Mothra were going, rap, you know? I mean, when I look, look at the videos, it's so apparent. Well, to start off with, I would have never thought you were nervous, just clarify, which is why this is interesting. But I do notice like you're, the way you bring that sense of groundedness to a music, which especially at the time was like alien space age stuff, is very, very evident. The way you ground the whole thing. Like I think for a lot of people in the audience, you were probably the only reason they could... And I'm I'm guessing here, you know, my apologies if I sound like a moron, giving them something to hold on to, you know, giving them that fundament on which they could sit and observe all the fireworks happening. Because without that, if you were just up there flying away too, I wouldn't know what to hold on to. Yeah, that's it. I think that's it, TL, you know, and it also throws up the question, you know, is music like nature in a sense that you know the elements of fire and water are very different you know air has its own thing going on carbon earth is its own thing like there must be some kind of analogy there you know between elemental more natural forces and having a good balance between them like you don't want too much of the same thing you know and i always felt a strong affinity to the feminine side of life because I was raised mostly by women, you know. Uh, I'm getting goosebumps when you say this, Kai, because that was exactly what I was about to address right now. You know, the 
I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but I had to put it out there. Please keep going. Yeah. Like the women were always the ones at home with me. Yeah. Whereas the men either had jobs or weren't present. Um, and I always felt like grounding to me was like being able to curl up somewhere and be safe, you know? Yeah. And, re and rely on the fact that, you know, the sun will come up, there will be something to eat tomorrow, you know? Whereas um, being a warrior who goes out and conquers things, you know, yeah. is a different kind of energy, you know? So and, and I think I'm more like someone who has seen the negative side of the conquering thing, mm -hmm. where I, I feel like the feminine needs to get its, its, its full credit and due in... in how how it's proportionate to the masculine side you so know feminine. which is also mm. like patriarchy is still sees itself as more important dominant more relevant and that's wrong you know i think in music it's the same way you know it's like i i love everything that people do who are like fighters you know who shed really hard, you know, to get faster and amass more information and, and all that kind of stuff. But just the, the, the silence, you know, in, in which everything ultimately disappears again in its own right is a force. And, and that in itself, I think, needs its proportionate relationship to what we usually worship as being, you know, high-powered, fast, and and progressive and forward-thinking and admirable, you know, the fireworks, yeah. so to speak. You know? yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think that's probably, yeah, that's how I would probably wrap it up. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and state a personal opinion. I, I would even go, as so far, go so far as to say... Um, your attitude towards um, music in, on, on some levels was way ahead of its time because at a time where jazz very much was about uh, athleticism, for lack of a better term, you were always about lyricism. And for me personally, lyricism has always been a feminine energy. And um, um, I think... What I personally loved, and this is really a personal opinion, I don't want to offend anyone, about that trio is that contrast between this very masculine energy from an Indian drummer and the first Indian drummer to perform in that contemporary format and this fiery guitar player who's, you know, just who's setting new records as far as agility on the instruments concerned and then there was you who was a complete ode to the feminine side of music way ahead of its time toxic masculinity wasn't even a term you know it's now what like 30 40 years later it's been talked about and i, I think it's very evident that combination of warrior and mother energy or it's been one of a kind 
I don't remember hearing a lot of music during that time, which embodied that amalgamation. TL, thank you. For, first of all, that's that's very like uh, um, it's actually it, it 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 feels reassuring what you're saying. You know, when if I look back at my own history, um, and I always felt like the ultimate fulfillment or the ultimate happiness for me in that context was when I managed to ground it like that. You know, in other words, just like that very sort of like even tempo underneath it all, you know, that doesn't move at all, that just keeps the cycle going. But at the same time, I wouldn't miss anything that is going on. Like part of myself was hearing Treelock, hearing what John was doing, exactly. you know, being actually tuned into the information and getting all the benefit of what they're saying while I'm holding it very, you know, steady. Did you Those ever are the feel... that I ch ch cherish. Sorry, I interrupted you there, man. No, no, that, that's, that's all I wanted to say. Did you ever feel caught between the two? Like, from a musical point of view? Um, yes. I mean, there's always a way to be caught either when I follow the information and then all of a sudden I don't know where one is. Mm -hmm. And that happened frequently, you know, like especially in the beginning. Like where I was like, in the very, very beginning, I had to not listen. Like literally I had to only focus on keeping the cycle and having the bass notes as foundation of the harmony where they need to be. Um, because listening, would just throw me off, you know? Let's say if John was playing groups of seven mm -hmm. over nine, eight, then I would all of a sudden feel like I'm in seven, eight. Mm -hmm. And it just takes a split second and, and you, you just don't know where one is. Then you have to kind of look around for John and Trelock to, for Trelock to hit the cymbal and go, oh, thanks, I'm back, you know? Okay, I'm gonna ask you a question, Kai, and I, and uh, it, it's it's a bold question, and I ask you because it's kind of closely connected to a lot of the topics we addressed earlier on as well, and you're free to answer in any way you want. Where is the one? Well, the one is where where we intended to be. So the interesting thing about creative expression is that we create the waves of the ocean that we surf on. You see what I'm saying? So it's an agreement. Exactly. And that's so interesting because the Sorry. ocean, the actual ocean in which we all, the spiritual ocean in which we all exist, is like incredibly receptive and neutral at the same time it, it's almost like it just waits for you to do something thank you it's like how do you want me to be you know thank who you. do you want me to be thank <laughs> you and that's closely related to what we were talking about in the very beginning as well i feel like for the longest time the music industry uh, has been ah, very much on the fence on you know what 
you know, the 80s was all about, a lot of 80s productions were all about this whole idea about playing tight grooves and, you know, key, you know, all these stories about how Stevie Dan would spend nights in the studio cutting stuff up together just to make it sound tighter and so on. And then the whole metronome thing came in where how good a musician you were was very closely connected to if you could you know, connect to a metronome. And an entire generation of musicians who could play with a metronome but still didn't have decent time grew up. And I feel like now we've reached a phase where there is the only answer you can find within for defining good time is the result of a legit and authentic self-reflection. Did I make that sound too weird? No, no, it makes sense. Um, with that also comes more and more of an understanding of what the elements in music really mean. Yeah. Um, what is a beat? And, and how does it affect my psyche or my being when it happens? What's the difference between when it happens in rapid succession or when it happens slow? How does it influence my mood? Like what happens when I hear a tone? How does it change things? Yeah. Like those questions are so important, um, which is those are like great coronavirus <laughs> quarantine questions <laughs> uh, because now I'm in an environment where I have no gigs um, I have nobody to tell me that I'm a good bass player oh, yeah. there's nobody that can say oh you're great because you're playing with X, Y and Z all of that's gone so now I'm back to what the heck does it mean when I sit here by myself and I'm just playing music for five minutes, you know, and, and that to me is my laboratory right now because I'm taking it very seriously and, and I'm becoming more aware of that sort of silent ocean of nothingness that is like the ultimate finest resolution in which I'm like always swimming at all times and it, how it reacts to everything I do, um, and and how when if I'm mature, I can take from it and give to it the the right proportion of things, so that music actually starts to like have a direct effect on my state of mind, and I come home and I didn't feel like I was alone the whole day. So beautiful, man. You know, like that's kind of where, how I'm trying to get through my day today. <laughs> that that is so beautiful. That is a, that is also a beautiful point to taper off our conversation. I want to respect your time again. We agreed on ninety minutes for you're the first guest uh, who I wanted to have on for a part two because uh, there's just such a enormous wealth of information in the things you have to say i don't want to cut it short kai where can we find you online and how is the best way to support you as an artist now right now well um i have a little homemade website you know mm -hmm. it's I, I i do everything myself i don't have a web developer so you're gonna see it's gonna look like a homemade website but it has everything it needs you know it's a storage place for all my new music and um, my experimental stuff. Um, 
I do have the, the 108 day mentorship program. So anybody who wants to learn about music um, can study with me for 108 days. Um, and also uh, I have, uh, um, I'm in a process of coming up with a blog of my own called Bass Philosophy. So I'm working on the first episode and I'm still not sure how I'm going to represent myself, but uh, it's probably going to start middle of October or beginning of November. And the best way to find me is just at kaieckhardt.com. So there, you know, you can contact me or you can just email me directly at kaieckhardt at gmail.com. Fantastic. So it, it's very simple that way, you know, and... Uh, um, just FYI, yeah. we're going to have all those links on the episode notes. So for my listeners, please make sure you do go check those links out. Um, I love you, man. I love you too, TL. We get to the stuff beneath the stuff, man. And and that's what, what I'm all about right now. Yeah. Life is too short. I, want, I also want people listening to this to know I personally have uh, done the 108 uh, mentorship, day mentorship program. I think I... Went on for about three years, four years. Um, it was a game changer, healing experience. And uh, one of the biggest reasons that I still continue to be a professional practitioner uh, of the arts. I, I can't um, begin to say enough how much of an impact that's had on me, Your how your mentorships ha uh, impacted me. And um, yeah, it's been a blessing to have had you in my life as a teacher, as a mentor and a friend. And thank you so much for coming on, man. You're so welcome, TL. And I really love what you're doing in depth interviews. Um, I just uh, realized that you did a, an interview with Sheila Chandra, yeah. who I was always very interested in. And I haven't checked it out yet. Uh, I'm going to go and listen to this one. Please do. It's worth it. Uh, I mean, I'm deeply indebted to her for having come on because uh, she had to not speak for three days before and after the interview so she could do it. It's the first time she's spoken on the record in years. So deeply indebted. And I think the themes she addresses and speaks out on will resonate with you. So Awesome. Right on, TL. So stay in touch, okay? Absolutely, you know, I know it was not the last time that we've connected. Oh, oh, fuck no. Definitely not. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love and talk soon. Just another voice out in.